0: Welcome to Right Side of the Brain, the Arts and Health podcast created by Interact Stroke Support. My guest in this edition, is Professor Anthony Rudd. He was Professor of Stroke Medicine at King's College London, Consultant Stroke Physician at and St. Thomas's Hospital and the National Clinical Director for Stroke for NHS England and NHS Improvement. This interview was recorded during the period of the lockdown. Thank you so much, Tony, for agreeing to do this uh, interview. So to start the interview off, could I know a little bit more about Tony Rudd? W- where were you born?
1: Okay, so I was born uh, in Bolton back in 1954, um, and moved down when I was quite young to London. I couldn't couldn't have been more comfortable, really. So very fortunate.
0: And did you always want to study medicine?
1: I actually did want to to study medicine from a very early age, obviously pretty unformed ideas about why there was no medics in my family. My father was a factory inspector, my mother was a primary school teacher. Um, But probably from about the age of eight or nine, I made up my mind that I wanted to be a a doctor.
0: And and which college in Cambridge did you go to?
1: So I went to Jesus College, Cambridge. Um, This was back in 1972. So pretty much an a completely male university. Certainly, Jesus was a, a male college. Um, just a three female colleges, I think, in Cambridge at the time. Um, and medicine—they didn't do clinical medicine up there at that time. They hadn't got uh, Addenbrooke's open as a medical school. It happened shortly after I left. But uh, um, as a place to study, it was amazing. Um, I'm in a lovely town. But, you know, quite insular and I was probably far too young to appreciate all the things that the university had to offer. Um, But uh, it was a good place, made good friends. um, And coming down to London felt as though I was sort of escaping from a very small town um, back to London again um, and working and and living around Camberwell. um, Obviously, very, very different sort of place to Cambridge um very international multi-ethnic um, much more poverty um, which um, obviously made for interesting social um experiences but uh, certainly from the medical point of view uh, the sort of range of problems that you saw uh, at king's college hospital um, was probably greater than, than most other medical schools would have offered at that stage.
0: And so when you'd finished your medical degree, which I'm presuming was the same length of degree as a medical student today, is, is that right?
1: Yeah, it was six years, so three years in Cambridge, three years at uh, King's.
0: And uh, so then did you become a GP?
1: No, so I uh, you have to had to do one year of uh, hospital training after getting uh, your medical degree. So I worked for six months um, around the King's area, Dulwich Hospital, and the King's College Hospital, and I had six months um, down in Woolwich, um, Greenwich, the Old Brook Hospital, um, and then. Um, Did a number of locums. I did do a a six-week general practice and a single-handed general practice, which was terrifying. A GP rang me up one day and said, look, I'm afraid I've got to go off sick. Would you come and take over the practice? And here was I, someone just out of medical school, pretty much taking over a single-handed practice in Eltham. Um, And I look back with horror, actually, at some (laughs) of the things that uh, I did or had to try and manage uh, standing outside uh, a lady's house who was clearly severely psychotic and distressed, uh, not having the first clue how to, to uh, help people with severe medical illness, you know, having never really dealt with it or come across it. Those sort of things uh, um, were very formative. There was no way that these days medical students or young doctors Uh, could ever be allowed into that sort of situation. But it did lead to uh, quite a steep learning curve, being on call as the senior physician in the hospital, um, having been uh, qualified for something like 14 months um, and being confronted by an 18-year-old young lady coming in with meningitis, profoundly ill. Um, and again, you know, the first real experience of doing a, a lumbar puncture on my own, the first experience of managing someone that sick. Um, and yet, the culture at that stage was that you didn't phone your consultant um, at night. Um, there wasn't a registrar on call, so no, the more senior person would have been the consultant. Uh, and you just, you know, that wasn't something you would have the courage to do. So hopefully things have changed very considerably from that point of view. Um, but actually, as a, as a way of learning medicine, um, it's probably unparalleled.
0: Well, one of the things that's often said, Tony, and uh, can I stress, not, not said by me, but I'd just like to know your view on this, is that uh, doctors don't really have people skills. Um, what, what, what do you say to that? What
1: I say is that medicine is a very, very broad profession uh, and fortunately attracts in a very wide range of people with different personalities. And if you are, I'm going to offend some of my colleagues now, but if you're the sort of doctor that enjoys sitting in a laboratory looking down a microscope at sections of tissues um, as a pathologist, you um, are going to be attracted to that because you probably do have a different range of skills and personality from the sort of person who becomes a psychiatrist um, and clearly has to have first-rate people skills. Um, Most doctors working in general practice, working on the wards in hospitals, um, have to have some people skills, but I have to say that sometimes you come across... um, clinicians who um, particularly within the surgical professions um, who clearly are better off with their patients and anesthetized when they interact
0: with them. Uh, Tony uh, you were you were talking about how you'd uh, graduated from Cambridge how you'd then started at King's you talked about that experience of uh, your, your six weeks sojourn uh, at, at an Eltham GP practice uh, could you tell us about your journey into stroke?
1: So I did general medicine training, I did a year of neurology um, down in Sussex. Um, I then made a decision that what really interested me was general medicine, um, was having a broad range of opportunity to practice um, medicine across a whole range of different diseases. So I decided that what I wanted to do was train as a geriatrician. Um, I'd seen extraordinarily poor care for older people um, during my training in the early years as a junior doctor. Um, patients largely being neglected, patients who uh, would um, maybe be interesting for the first day or two in hospital because they could be taught on by the consultant in the teaching hospital, but actually who they very quickly lost interest in patients lying in bed for long periods of time, very little in the way of rehabilitation, um, essentially written off many in many cases because they were elderly or because they had dementia or, or those sort of range of diseases. So I went and trained um, at the Hammersmith Hospital as a registrar in geriatrics um, and then became a lecturer, senior registrar at St. George's Hospital with um a very well-known geriatrician called Professor Peter Millard, um, who was a fantastic teacher and clinician. And I spent four years actually as his apprentice. You don't get training like that anymore. You now have to move every six months or year at the very most um, between different hospitals. But actually the opportunity to spend four years um, with one clinician and becoming, and and really with, with you, Got a consultant who is responsible for training you, who is interested in you as an individual and as a future professional, um, was I think invaluable. So I spent four years there and then uh, applied to for a consultant job at St Thomas's, which uh, I got. So I started at St Thomas's as a general. A consultant in general medicine and uh, geriatrics, um, and there were two consultants there and geriatricians at the time, um, and we fairly soon appointed a third one. And shortly after he arrived, we sat down in the office and said, "Look, stroke care in St Thomas's is pretty poor. There were patients being spread all over the hospital. There wasn't a stroke unit. Indeed, they were they didn't really exist very much in the time anywhere." Um, And uh, they were being serious, you know, there was no proper coordinated multidisciplinary care for the stroke patients in the hospital. Not in the way that, for example, we had those teams for the geriatric wards. But if you were young um, and uh, you know you had your stroke at the age of 45, you'd have been admitted to a general medical ward um, and there would have been really nowhere for you to go. And if you were elderly, you'd have been admitted to a general ward to begin with and after some weeks probably been transferred to the geriatric ward for further rehabilitation. It was a fairly chaotic situation. So the three of us sat down and said one of us ought to take on the problem of stroke and see if we could sort it out. The first thing that we did was to set up a ward as the stroke unit for the hospital. Now, I was a geriatrician, not really seen by my colleagues, probably as a proper doctor. Um, and so one of the first things I did was to go and speak to um, the senior neurologist in the hospital, a consultant called um, Dr. Ross Russell, who was a, a very senior Um, neurologist, well known for his work on cerebrovascular disease, um, worked at Queen Square and at St Thomas's. And I said to him, would you be prepared to come and do a joint ward round with me uh, once a week to see some of the, the patients on the stroke unit? And I wanted to do that for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because I thought it would be a great educational experience for me, teaching me a lot more about cerebrovascular disease than I knew already. Um, secondly, I thought that the patients deserved to have a really senior neurological opinion, um, and thirdly, because I needed to persuade my consultant colleagues, the other physicians in the hospital, um, to let their stroke patients come to the stroke ward. And I think if that, that I thought that if they knew that they were going to be seen at least by a proper doctor once a week, um, then uh, they'd be more agreeable to let that happen. So we set the stroke unit up. The patients we brought all the stroke patients from the hospital onto that stroke unit, and we were one of the first stroke units in London. Um, and really, from there, um, it the sort of the management of stroke became much more dominant for me as a clinician. I carried on doing geriatrics and general medicine for a while, um, but. Uh, After a few years, the workload became so heavy that uh, I just focused on stroke. So that was my sort of clinical path um, to becoming a stroke physician. There was no formal training to become a stroke physician uh, at that time. It's come since. Um, And the the whole specialty of stroke, developing it, has been probably one of the most important Important developments in stroke um, that we've seen, actually recognizing that stroke is a disease that's treatable, because it certainly wasn't seen as being treatable when I first started. Um, I often tell a story um, of uh, when I first set the stroke unit up and uh, I wanted to get a brain scan for a patient, not something which these days would be in any way unusual but at that stage getting access to the CT scanner was not that easy and I wasn't doing it on all the patients but I particularly wanted to scan on this particular patient so I sent the form down um, requesting a CT scan and a couple of days later because that's how quickly the radiology department operated the form came back uh, scribbled over at the scan not indicated. So I sent my registrar down at the end of the ward round to give a bit more detail about why I thought it was important. He came back and said, I've done my best. I'm afraid I can't. So I thought, well, I'll go down and have a man-to-man talk with this uh, radiologist. Um, and I walked into his office and he looked up and he looked really angry and then he stood up and he said, your registrar's already been here. I've explained to him, you're not having a scan. And then he punched me on the nose um, and told me to get out. Now, that was the first and the last time that i have been assaulted by a consultant. Um, I no longer get hit when I ask for a CT brain scan. So things have definitely improved uh, in terms of the quality um, of care that patients can receive. So I think that things really have transformed. I tell that story um, fairly frequently, but I, it's, it was a... Um, It's sort of a a marker, really, of how stroke patients were regarded uh, at that time. Yes. Um, And then other bits of the stroke story of my stroke story are that I was invited to come and sit on a committee at the College of Physicians to talk about stroke. Um, Ended up a week later chairing a committee at the Department of Health, um, looking at outcomes after stroke building a team at the College of Physicians, a working party representing all the different professions and using that group. um, Over the years we established national audit for stroke, we developed national clinical guidelines for stroke um, and really I think it helped to put stroke on the map as being a disease that had to be taken seriously, that needed separate funding Um, that was important for research. And that's been a major thing that's happened over the last 20 or 30 years, uh, that's led to improvements in the quality of care. Um, And uh, so, you know, we have reached the point now where the vast majority of patients with stroke can expect to be admitted to a specialist unit, can expect to be seen by a specialist team of stroke clinicians, There are still lots of things that are not perfect, not least rehabilitation.
0: Yes. Um, uh, Tony, I think it would be fair to say that you were one of the uh, critical figures in reconfiguring stroke in London, uh, developing the Hazus. Could you you talk us uh, through your thinking behind that, uh, how it came about and why you felt it was so important?
1: so we had a situation where um, across the country but uh, it was exactly the same but in london as an example we had a large number of hospitals 32 that were attempting to deliver acute stroke care Um, that where despite having clear guidelines despite having new treatments that we could implement um, despite providing them with audit data, the quality of care in many of those hospitals um, was still not great. Patients were not getting the clot-busting treatment they needed. They were taking too long to get onto a stroke unit. They weren't getting access to rapid rehabilitation. All those sort of things were had sort of stagnated. We'd done a lot of work, but actually not seen all that much in the way of change. Um, and in 2007, the government, um, following a very critical National Audit Office report, launched the National Stroke Strategy, and within that, that was a a strategy that was led by Sir Roger Boyle, who was the National Clinical Director for Heart Disease at the time, Um, and one of the things within that was looking at models elsewhere in the world, Um, that were more successful than we were. And one of those was in Canada where they had centralized uh, care um, in in that particular part of Canada with great success. So we decided that London would be a really good place to try and focus care for stroke patients in a smaller number of hospitals. You say that I was central to that. I mean, I was one of the key players, but there were several people Uh, And one who I would highlight uh, was Dame Ruth Carnell, who was the chief executive of the Strategic Health Authority in London at that time. So we pushed hard as a clinical group to get change happening in London. Um, And in a very short period of time, because of the drive and enthusiasm of Ruth Carnell, um, and because the clinicians were speaking with a single voice saying, look, We recognize that we can't sit around and carry on doing things in the same way that we always have. We have to make some changes. Um, We managed to get agreement that there would be some extra money put into stroke care in the capital, um, that we would pay that money for patients being treated effectively and not pay if, if the treatment wasn't of high quality that we would focus all the acute care, so the first two or three days after a patient's had their stroke, at a really critical time when they need very high levels of nursing, access immediately to skilled clinicians, doctors, um, the acute treatments, the investigations, we would focus all that care, instead of trying to do it in 32 hospitals, to just do it in eight. So each hospital serving a population of about a million people. Um, and then, and that we set minimum staffing levels for nurses and for doctors and, and therapists. And then, if people still needed care in hospital, then we would um, um, move them to a specialist acute stroke unit. Um, and then we had a total when we first started of about twenty-four of those. So stroke care was stopped in a number of hospitals and. Focus or the acute focus was in eight hospitals. Uh, And almost overnight, from implementing that model, um, the quality of care improved. The mortality rate came down. So the chances of surviving a stroke were significantly higher in London than they were in the rest of the country. The length of stay, so that the use of hospital resources came down. Um, All the processes of care were very much better. And I was the London clinical director overseeing this. And one of the things that um, we did was to continue to provide support for all those hospitals who had to go through major changes to improve the quality of their care. Uh, And I continued to inspect every single one of the hospitals providing stroke care every year uh, for the following eight, nine years that uh, I was in that role um because it's relatively easy to I say relatively easy, it's quite difficult, but actually the exciting bit is when you first set things up. The difficult bit is actually maintaining the quality of care, maintaining the enthusiasm over the subsequent years, when it's just hard graft. Patients coming in all the time, you're doing the same thing again and again, um, and it's really hard, particularly on the nursing staff. It's bloody hard work. Why would you want to work as a nurse uh, looking after stroke patients, heavy patients often requiring lots of, of care around the basic functions of you know, keeping people clean and preventing pressure sores and maintaining their mood and helping them rehabilitate, when actually you could, for the same pay, uh, you know, go out onto the district and do a few wound dressings in the course of the morning, and then go home and have a cup of tea. I'm not being trying to be rude to community nurses; they're fully fulfilling a very important role. But actually, the role of the stroke nurse is is really hard work, incredibly satisfying. But uh, and that's why we keep people in it, and people stay and want to practice stroke medicine. But it's uh, it's not easy.
0: You, you mentioned Dr. Boyle. And uh, I read a, a report um, he said the patient experience is vital. And so uh, with regards to that, I'd, I would like to know, uh, Tony, what your views are um, with regards to the arts in relation to uh, health and rehabilitation.
1: Well, I mean, you raised the, the, the problem that maybe not all doctors are great communicators, and the fact is that probably most of us are on being interested in the science of medicine and maybe much less uh, on the art of it. Um,
0: it's got to, if to be successful, then you've got to be able to practice both
1: things. So know, make sure that you're giving the right um investigations, the right treatment, the right drugs, um, but at the same time, you have to be able to make people want to get better, to encourage them to recognize that the brain has so many different functions, including um, appreciation of the environment that you're in, um, appreciation of music, appreciation of word, communication skills, all those sort of things. And... I think that we probably over the years have focused our rehabilitation and treatment on getting people to walk and to be able to get on and off the toilets and to be able to keep themselves clean um, and probably not enough um, on the things which actually make our lives really worthwhile, which is around building relationships, which is around appreciating the arts, it's around um, you know being able to um, enjoy life um, so I the work that Interact does for example um, in terms of bringing the spoken word to people who often have major problems with communication who are often low in mood um, the role that some There's very few music therapists around, for example, these days, but those that are can often bring out uh, um, thoughts, feelings, and functions within stroke patients that that the usual sort of clinical team never get to see.
0: You you said uh, earlier uh, how the reconfiguration of stroke obviously saw things like uh, the length of stay. In, in a hospital dramatically reduced. Um, does that mean that now the reality of rehabilitation is that it largely occurs in the community setting? We haven't cracked rehabilitation, really. It's
1: We are still focusing most of our resources for rehabilitation for the patients in hospital. Um, and at the same time, we're seeing the length of stay in hospitals coming down. And probably if you added up the time that people actually receive active rehabilitation now compared to 20 years ago, people are probably getting less because they're moving out of hospital more quickly uh, and back into the community. There have been improvements in community rehabilitation. There's no doubt about that. So one of the trials that I was involved in um, over 20 years ago now, 24 years ago, was... Um, was early supported discharge, getting people out of hospital quickly, um, quicker than normal, let's put it that way, Uh, but providing them with the same multidisciplinary stroke unit type rehabilitation in their own homes um, was actually very successful. And it's a model which has largely been copied around the country. About 80% of areas in England now have access to early supported discharge, for example, which will provide you with reasonably intense rehabilitation for a few weeks after discharge. It's only appropriate probably for about 40% of patients. Um, And the other 60% probably still need rehabilitation, but not in that particular form. And they often have to wait a long time for rehabilitation, the chances of getting the intensity of rehabilitation, which is going to be um, most beneficial for them is, uh, is not really very great. So somehow we've got to recognize that rehabilitation after stroke is something which often requires quite long periods of uh, input. It's not something which is going to be complete in four weeks or six weeks or even just six months. It's something which for many patients needs to go on for a very long period of time we don't have the systems in place. We don't have the resources to enable that to happen. We provide rehabilitation at ridiculously low doses. If you equate it to, you know, to giving medicines, if I just gave you one milligram of aspirin, it would have no benefit whatsoever. I have to give you 75 milligrams of aspirin. I think we're giving the equivalent of one milligram of rehabilitation to many of our patients. So we've got to, focus on trying to get rehabilitation to the right patients to in a speedier time as possible and carrying on for as long as they're continuing to benefit from it and giving them the intensity uh, which is going to give them the best possible
0: outcomes. Um, Could I just ask you about the NHS Uh, and and I don't mean you know wonderful practitioners like yourself and the nurses that you mentioned earlier but I mean more in terms of structure Compared to other countries, uh, if we were designing a health service from scratch now, would, would it be the sort of top-down model that, that is the NHS? Or would we look at you know, a, a model like Italy, Spain, Germany, Belgium, etc.?
1: I'm a great fan of the NHS, and I think that, to a large extent, having a centralised model um, has huge advantages you can have an economy of scale, you can have um, evidence-based treatments um, spread out across the country in many respects. I mean, the COVID crisis has shown how unequal a society we still are. Um, But if you look at the quality of care that patients receive, it's pretty much the same whether they live um, in poverty or whether they live in you know, a very affluent area. Um, and you do not see that equivalence of quality of care in many other countries. For some things, yes, it's important to make local decisions. We had the Strategic Health Authority in London, which enabled us to implement rapidly changes across the whole of the capital, there's no way that we could do that now, not with 32 clinical commissioning groups each making their own separate
0: decisions. And just finally, then to, to finish off, you, you, you made the very interesting point earlier where you said, on reflection, you know, we, we we try to help people, you know, walk. We try to help people, you know, get on uh, on and off the toilets, but we don't really focus on. The things that give meaning to our lives. Um, How do you think that might change?
1: I think that it's always going to be difficult because we are living in a time when resources are going to be scarce pretty much for the foreseeable future and even more scarce now in the coming years. And it's while I can make a health economic case for um, putting in more rehabilitation in hospital, for example, to get people walking quicker and out of hospital quicker, because I can say that this is going to save the NHS money or it's going to save social services money. Um, Actually, to make the case that um, putting in art therapy or music therapy or providing more of the Interact type services, um, it's much more difficult to make the economic case yes. that actually this is worth investing in. So am I optimistic that we're going to dramatically change? No, I think that charities such as the Stroke Association, such as Interact, um, do have a really important role to act as a patient, you know, to speak on behalf of the patients about how important some of these higher level function things are. I think, you know, we need a few more high profile, um, you know, politicians and other people to have strokes. I, you know, I think it's. You know, I don't wish it on anybody.
0: You mean like Andrew Lansley? It's who, like Andrew Lansley. Isn't he a stroke survivor himself? He was a stroke survivor himself, um, and actually,
1: he did have a bit of a soft spot for stroke. He chaired the stroke part, all party parliamentary group for stroke for a number of years until he became minister. Um, but. I think having personal experience sometimes is important um, to get amongst the policymakers to make them appreciate what really matters. Andrew Marr, for example, was a really powerful, is a really powerful advocate uh, for stroke. We need more people like that to be speaking up about some of the things which I've talked about, but we need to hear that patient voice and understand that actually um, it's not good enough simply to get them home. They've got to be home and able to enjoy life.
0: Tony, thank you so much. Professor Anthony Rudd, for more information about our work, please do visit our website at www.interactstrokesupport.org and if you're feeling generous, please do click on the big red donate button. My name's Neerjema Hindru and I look forward to your company on the next edition of Right Side of the Brain.